Hello, welcome to In The Pink, the podcast with me, Natalie Pinkham. Now, my next guest is really interesting. I know I always say that, but when I found out I was interviewing this guy, I thought he is going to have some incredible stories. Something that surprised me, though, was just how moved I was by everything he had to say. I'm talking about the British record holder for summiting Everest 13 times, in case you're wondering. I'm talking about Mr. Kenton Cool. His vision of the world is truly incredible and something that I think we can all learn a lot from. He is incredibly humble and modest, again, something that surprised me. And he is in love with life. He's got a gorgeous family and a lot of adventures still to be had, but he certainly doesn't take anything for granted. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Let me know what you think. For now, relax for the next 45 minutes or so. Well, actually, it's a fair bit longer than that because, well, quite frankly, I didn't want him to stop talking. Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy Mr. Kenton Cool. Well, Kenton, um, thank you for joining me today. It's great to see you. You're in this country for once. I mean, you're normally travelling the world, globetrotting. Although, actually, you do get periods of time where you get to spend quality time with your family, don't you? That's important no, yes, to you. No, t- 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 totally. So I'm quite grounded at the moment, doing my, my second job, arguably my most important job of daddy daycare. So, yeah, Jazz, my wife, is uh, in a big stint of work right now. So I am juggling the children, which is as fulfilling as anything else I do. Absolutely. Well, do you know, because one of my first questions has got to be, and I'm sure it's one that everyone asks you, is how you do cope with family life and how your family life how your family cope with your mountaineering like this idea that it is an innately selfish thing to do but you've got kids but it sounds to me like you do spend quality time with them as well and in a way in many ways it's better than doing a nine-to-five yeah I I think so it's finding a balance I, I think all of us in modern world the 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 work the workplace has shifted my workplace happens to be the mountains and arguably the single hardest thing that I do in connection with my job is to say goodbye to the family. You know, that's the, my wife, Jazz, the, the, two, the two children, um, Willoughby and, uh, and Saffron. And, um, and, to, and to close the door on them and say goodbye for four, five, six weeks, however long it's going to be. And I think the interesting thing is that you picked up on it there climbing is an inherently selfish thing I mean, what do we do it for well i suppose for self-fulfillment a sense of freedom you know, whatever it is that it brings to us pers- personally and my only justification for the amount of travel and time away from the family is that it is work mm. mountaineering has morphed into what i do in terms of earning earning a wage paying a mortgage putting food on the table etc etc and I would struggle, really deeply struggle, if I left home as much as I do for, for me and not for us as a collective. We call ourselves the Five Amigos. Uh, that's the dog included. <laughs> uh, so, and when I'm away, it, it, it becomes the Five Amigos become the Four Amigos and they become a very close unit doing things together, doing things collectively. Uh, but it's hard. It's hard on everybody. And... 
and it was interesting last year or the year before the school it was last year the school interjected but not they didn't interject they they, they observed in saffron that she was who, who's my eldest daughter um and she's She's eight, eight now. Yeah, she, yeah, she's eight. A super sensitive girl, very astute and in tune with her own feelings and, and that of others. And school had picked up on the fact that she was making reference to daddy being away uh, more and more. And it seems to be there's about a four-week window where everybody, myself included, is relatively happy and down mm. with it. Mm. After four weeks... And it was interesting, I was chatting to Ben Fogel, um, who I was with on Everest at the same, uh, last year. And he's been on this podcast. He has. Yeah. Uh, uh, fantastic. Yeah, no, he's a good guy, actually. We like Ben a lot. Um, and both Ben and I were talking about this. And in four weeks, we think, is about the period where mm. you are still in touch with what's going on on a daily basis. Mm. More than four weeks, you become disassociated with what's going on at home. And interesting enough, Saffron picked up on it and what, what would have been a fifth week away she's talking to her teacher and becoming destabilised from her normality by me being away so it's desperately difficult so can you limit it to the, the, the full week well unfortunately probably not I mean climbing Everest uh, is traditionally about seven eight weeks long wow. the way that I work in a more bespoke manner uh, I've done it in three weeks three days I've, that's without a client door to door uh, I've with a client four weeks two days with Rob Lucas a lovely lovely man um, there's my client in 2016 and then with Ben we were five weeks on the on, you know, on the nose door to door and five weeks I think is eminently achievable mm. but I, I can't say to a client we're going to leave London or wherever home is and get to the top of Everest and back down safely and back home within four weeks mm. you just can't do it uh, or not no, the, the mountain dictates, not not us. Yeah. So. so, so what are your coping mechanisms then? Do you compartmentalise? Because I know a lot of men do, and I know it's a massive cliche to say, but men do seem to be able to park things in boxes and revisit them as and when they need to, in a way that maybe women can't. And again, sweeping generalisation. I just want to know if you agree. Well, it'd be, it'd be yes, in a way. I, I'm very good at once that door is shut, and I get about twenty minutes towards Heathrow. I am in expedition mode and it's partly a defense mechanism uh, I very rarely connect via um, you know Skype or FaceTime it's, it's messages or the occasional telephone call and I try to limit that and that's my own defense mechanism because I, 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 I feel that if I let the children or jazz into my life when I'm away it it just eats away at my own insecurities, I suppose, about being away and that wants to be back home. You know, the whole FOMO, fear of missing out. Well, I'm on this amazing adventure climbing Everest, yet I'm missing out at home. Works both ways. Uh, so I am quite good at that. But it would be interesting to, to talk to... You know, well, well, you're the same to a certain extent. You, know, you travel the world away from the family. How do you cope? You know, what's, well, what's, what's unlike you, I limit it, but I limit it to four days as opposed to four weeks. Uh, okay. and, but, but, but even then, it's, it's bloody hard. And it does, the anxiety actually gets me first um, and guilt. Um, and I'm like you, I, selfishly, I want to FaceTime all the time. 
But actually, it destabilises the kids. I don't think it's very fair, actually, to FaceTime. No, I, I, I'm in agreement on that. I, well, I, I don't know. There's probably a balance somewhere. But I, I, I try to not do it. I and mean, there's this hilarious one. So, so you can get Wi-Fi at every space camp now. We won't go into whether it's good or bad. It's just development. Let's just go with it. But uh, I, I was FaceTiming a few years ago from every space camp. I mean, believe, technology's amazing. And I'm there FaceTiming the family. Uh, the Sherpas behind me are really interested in what's going on. The children are like, oh, yeah, hi, Daddy, and showing them around base camp, and the Sherpas all waving because they've met some of my Sherpa friends. And then completely unknown of what's going on, Jazz walks out the shower with a towel around her oh. to come and say hello, not fully realising that there's about four or five Sherpas peering over my shoulder, looking, and then Jazz appears semi-naked. He's like, oh, my, oh, my Lord, oh, my Lord. Uh, it's the funniest thing ever. Um, but it is a powerful tool and it allows us to connect across across the globe and for the children to see what base camp is and see some of my Sherpa friends and what I'm doing it, it does help them cope with it to a certain yeah. extent but there is a, there's, a, there's a balance there yeah. somewhere and also I presume they want to know what daddy's doing and it gives them a better sense so. of you I, I, to I, see I, you in your kind of natural habitat if you like yeah, I, I, I think so it's, it's interesting as they get older they have a better understanding mm. of the danger mm. that goes with it and, do they? and that um, must make it harder for them because then they must yeah. well I mean because jazz must know the dangers but when you're blissfully ignorant yeah. you're not worried are you we um we did a little um, sort of teaser reel about a project we're working on and the uh, the guy came and interviewed me at home and interviewed Willoughby who's six and Willoughby sat there he's, he's beautiful he's, he's on you know, he sat on this big sofa just him in the middle and Ollie's asking him some questions and what do you think about daddy going to Everest and he's like and it's a very considered uh, answer he's like well I'm not so sure it's a good thing and Ollie's like, so, so, so why is that, Willoughby? Because, well, there's something called the death zone. Now, in the death zone, if your listeners don't know, it's the area of atmosphere which you know, our bodies can't adapt to. So we simply put, we die. And Willoughby, and Willoughby says to the camera, yeah, there's this thing called the death zone. And I'm not sure how sensible it is for Daddy to go there. And it's so sweet that he's got the understanding of what's going on. But, of course... I watched this because I wasn't there when it was being filmed I watched this and burst into tears thinking I go on this big adventure and have this ability to put things in a box like you mentioned but then leave the family to pick up the pieces and of course I come back five, six weeks later like full of the beans uh, what does Jazz call me uh, fun time Frankie like whoa daddy's back and Jazz will say I've got to pick up the pieces from when you go and then pick up the pieces of this destruction you bring back because you're this big jazz hands. Whoa, daddy's back. Let's get on it. Build tree houses, fall out of trees, get muddy, uh, roll around and wrestle. And it upsets the status quo once again. So, I mean, before you had kids, presumably. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It was easier in, in this respect. Did Jazz kind of know what she was getting into? Were you always going away before you met? How long have uh, you been together? Yeah, God. So we've been yeah. married now for 10 years. Uh, we, met in, uh, we met in Chamonix, uh, in a bar in Chamonix, um, as you do. Well, she, very she, sexy. Yeah, she was on a ski trip. Uh, I was working as a ski guide, not her ski guide, <laughs> I, uh, you know, ski guide, mountain guide. And I was living in Chamonix at the time. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was 2006. I'd already climbed Everest twice by then, but had climbed numerous other mountains. I mean, my career has been over 25 years now of being in the mountains. And it's a cliche, but it's what I do. And if you take the mountains and climbing and skiing out of me, you're left with a shell of the person that you, know, you fall in love with. Um, and that's unfair on anybody or anything. If that individual naturally organically morphs into someone else because of marriage or children or love or change of circumstances if that's if that is a a natural shift then then that's different but you you can't stamp out something that's been there forever so so can you imagine ever doing anything else um not really uh retirement maybe (laughs) In so much that I've got time to just pursue my dreams and ambitions. But I'm really lucky, uh, and I suspect you're probably the same. I love my job. I deeply adore what I do. And my connection with the mountains is, is paramount. And I can, I can spend one day in a mountain or in the mountain environment you know, with a client, you know, with a, you know, inverted commas, a customer, a friend, on my own. It doesn't really matter. And I, I get reset and all of a sudden the angst and the stress that I have from everyday life that surrounds us just evaporates and that's my job I'm so lucky I'm so so lucky to, 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 to find that um, thing where I can morph the two together I mean it is amazing because most people do associate any stress that develops in their life around their job and yet your job's the thing that breaks it up it does uh, okay so I sat on my computer this morning and I had a call with a potential client in the, in the UAE and now I'm juggling things like that and I had to pay a, an exorbitant VAT bill and, and you know, so that's all a bit stressful so that is part of the job but the actual physical act of guiding yes it's super serious get it wrong and it goes seriously wrong but i find it a leveler it's just being that freedom of the mountains is it's invigorating it's 
you know, I, I've, I've been there with, with Wiggy, you know, your, 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 your husband. And I came across the picture not that long ago. We were sat on top of the Grolf's Finster Hall uh, in Switzerland, just the two of us. Uh, it was inverted commas work. And the smile on both of our faces, you know, not, 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 not just Wiggy's face, but both of our faces, you know, that's not something that you can get in front of a camera and fake. That is a deep-seated joy that comes from doing what we were doing. Uh, and that was, well, I'm guessing, like five, six years ago now. And I, I can remember, I mean, he was wearing that stupid headband that he occasionally <laughs> wears, and we were laughing and joking on the way up. None of the other teams got up there that day. It was a really long day. And then crashing down in the mountain hut and having a beer together. I mean, it's, it's life stripped back bare and you realize what the essentials of life really are uh it's keeping hydrated it's keeping um you know fed and watered and keeping safe and warm and or keeping you know temperature regulations all the things that as a species were so important to us yet we've lost as we have developed into society that we are today um and, and climbing just brings it all back you know we are back to not quite being cavemen but it's the same important things become important and if you're on an expedition that becomes the same but on steroids and and presumably it's because you're pitting yourself against mother nature at her most potentially at her most ferocious i I, I think we're not pitting ourselves against because we're always going to lose uh i mean Ed, ed hillary famously said he maybe wasn't the first, but he famously said, you, you never conquer the mountain, you merely conquer yourselves. And I think being in, in Mother Nature, be it diving or running or climbing, whatever it is, you, you are merely existing within a different environment that perhaps most of us are used to. I, I forget what a statistic is, but in I think it's in 50 years, something like 80% of global population will be living in an urban environment. So the urban environment is rapidly becoming our go-to norm, the environment which we are happy to operate in. Yet as a species, we haven't genetically developed into that environment. We're still, in theory, running around, um, not that far removed from being cavemen, hunting food, gathering food. So when we do go in the mountains, I think, deep down somewhere we have a connection already there uh, and it doesn't have to be the mountains it could, you know, it could be your local park or uh, the Cotswold Way or the South Downs or you know, wherever it is the listener is, li- you know, is listening to this just get outside and that's where we have a deep connection with Mother Nature it hasn't been bred out of us yet um, so. Is there a risk that it will though? You say yet. Species always develop, don't we, over time. Um, We we were, myself and a uh, friend at home, we were out cycling. And I live in the Cotswolds, beautiful part of the world. Um, I'm not a big, well, I don't really condone it, but it's big on sort of shooting, fox hunting, fishing, etc., etc. I mean, I don't partake in any of those. And we were cycling along the roads one day and and a pheasant ran across the road didn't fly across the road it ran across the road and we were looking at this pheasant and tim said i wonder how long it will be until the species of the pheasant breeds flying out of them 
because obviously if the beaters are out there if the bird goes airborne it's going to be shot where it stays to ground if it runs rather than flies it's probably going to survive and we were joking how long will that take until the pheasant no longer flies or a strain of pheasant no longer flies how long yeah exactly (laughs) Um, because all the others get get shot it's slightly different in the human species but you know we are developing Mm. as a species how long until we become totally adapted to the urban environment and lose that deep connection to the outdoors who knows hopefully never Mm. and so so presumably that has always been in you when did you realize that actually mountaineering was going to be not just a life but a career everything to you how young were you I, i wasn't young at all uh the I remember vividly the moment of making a decision to apply for the British Mountain Guides. So I'm a fully qualified mountain guide, IFMGA Mountain Guide. That's the International Federation of Mountain Guides Association. It means I can work in Switzerland, France, globally. Um, it's the top gun of mountain guiding leadership, ski guiding as well. And I was working on a power station in Bowie, South Wales and uh, it wasn't a particularly glamorous job and we were camping to save money rather than spend money on B&Bs or digs because I was living in Sheffield commuting down on a Sunday all week and we were painting and repairing a flare stack right. so not a particularly glamorous job <laughs> and we were in the pub one night with my then best friend a beautiful man called Jules Cartwright and Jules had put in an application to apply to train to become a British mountain guide and as the pints of beer were slipping down he was um, badgering me come on come on let's do it together let's do it together it'll be fun we'll go through it and be fun and we can help and nurture one another I'm like no it's not for me it's not for me I don't want to mix my passion for the mountains with with a career as the night transpired the bet was he would give me two bottles of quality scotch if I put the application in and I had about 48 hours to put a very long application together. So in my lunch hour the next day, I'm there on a the computer tapping away and the application got sent off. And uh, I was accepted first time round, which is pretty unusual. Um, and didn't really look back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since uh, we started training and assessment. So how old were you then? Uh, this was 2002, about that. So what's that, 15, 16 years ago now, 17 years ago. Mm. So do the math, 28. Because didn't you have a horrible accident where you broke both your heels when you were just early 20s? Yeah, you got a good memory. Um, I was done some research. Um, yeah, I, I had an altercation with the ground. Uh, and when you try to fight Mother Nature, you generally come off second best. So I was um, perhaps batting above my station, jumped on a hard route in North Wales, a hard rock route, on a damp, miserable day, didn't really want to do it, but friend of mine had just done a hard route and the competitive nature of got better and so I jumped on an even harder route I claim I broke a hold so rock climbing you, you know you got hand holds foot holds I to this day I think I broke a hold and fell uh, fell off wasn't that high about 15 feet above the floor That's and then it's yes, high enough I hit the deck and it's in the slate quarry so the floor was covered with in the platelets of slate so it's a really hard landing and I shattered both my heel bones uh, which it was quite painful (laughs) Uh, so that saw me four and a bit weeks in hospital three and a half months in a wheelchair three operations uh, crutches for forever it felt like but an amazing learning experience Uh, amazing care through the NHS we hear in the press these days that the NHS is doomed to failure my okay admittedly it was 17 years ago level of care and service second to none no the the nurses were amazing the doctors were amazing rehab was it was okay but you know it's the nhs they don't have the resources and it's always the aftercare everyone says that in the immediate moment in the emergency second to none but then seminal moment i was in john radcliffe hospital it was a stinking hot day it was 1996 I was in isolation and a doctor came in Bob Hanley orthopaedic surgeon who's only just retired Um, I still keep tabs on it and he came in and said right I will rebuild your feet so you can wear normal shoes because at the time they was talking about I would have specially made shoes I would not walk without a stick I would never run all these things and he came in and said right I rebuild your feet so you can wear normal shoes. More than that, it's down to you. And that's actually quite a powerful thing to say to somebody because that's saying, don't rely on us. We would do everything we can for you. And then beyond that, it's down to you as an individual. And when we think about it, that's life. People aren't here to necessarily help you. Yeah, they can assist. They can point you in the right direction, like my consultant, Bob Handy did by rebuilding my feet but then after that is there you go in the big wide world and what you carve for yourself the journey uh, that, that you create that's down to you and I was what 22 at the time uh, and that was a powerful thing mm. powerful I was going to say that is quite an empowering thing to say stranger I mean it's probably quite intimidating to hear quite daunting in a way for a 22 yeah. year old to hear but yeah, I, I, also I, quite empowering 
very empowering and I didn't really understand the significance of it until years later and then also on the flip side the the arrogance that came with another consultant who just walked in and said right that's it mate you're buggered uh, you won't run you won't climb uh, you won't walk without a stick which crushed a young 22 year old who was lying in bed unable to move um, and the, the two differences two different consultants both working for the NHS and the different is chalk and cheese not surprising that I know exactly what Bob Handley's done throughout his career I know that he's just retired he spent most of his career at the John Radcliffe and the other one I couldn't even tell you what his name was that's the difference and it's the attitude beyond anything else yeah but it's also your attitude because that's the one you chose to listen to so it says a lot about you well there's no choice really was there one's either going to crush the dream and aspiration and the other one is nurturing it and saying okay chief it's down to you what are you prepared to do rather than say you can't Mm. it was only recently well I say recently three or four years ago when I wrote wrote a book and I was reflecting on the, the first consultant and forgive me I, I really cannot remember his name oh, I'd love well yeah I suppose it is a good thing otherwise yeah I'd name and shame um, it's only retrospectively that maybe some of my drive came from mm-hmm. the fact mm-hmm. that there is somebody that has the audacity to think that they can squash somebody's ambition and dream of getting back on their feet and moving forward literally and, and metaphorically oh, no, yeah, absolutely yeah. no absolutely and I don't do a lot of speaking in school I do quite a lot of speaking and I was in a school in Geneva only the other day it's unusual for me to speak in schools but I was there in a school and I was saying to these children never let anybody tell you you can't because if you have a dream or passion or ambition, a bit climbing mountains, playing the violin, skiing, as a lot of these uh, young children did in a school in Geneva. I don't care what the passion or the vision or the dream is. Nobody has the authority to take that away. And, yeah, it's... But it happens a lot in this society. People say, no, you can't, or it's impossible, or it's against the rules. But who are they to say that we can't? and it's all links back to mountains mountains are these amazing places that are available to everybody and we hear a lot about the tragedy on Everest on Everest and people go there that perhaps don't have the experience and you know, we'll probably get back onto that later during, uh, during our little chat but the fact that anybody can go there anybody can express their own desire and dreams in the outdoors there's no jumping through hoops you don't need to be a member of a club or society there's no dress code there's no you don't need to be nominated and seconded to walk up snowden or walk across the south downs or whatever it is it's it's there for everybody and that's what i love about the sport or is it a hobby is it a a lifestyle it's clearly a passion clearly a passion so at that point when you had that horrific accident what was your climbing CV like you presumably hadn't summited Everest at that stage and yet you went on to do it 13 times so you learned a lot about yourself you grew a lot after that experience at what point did you realise that yes the second surgeon didn't have the right to dictate the course of your life uh, was there there a sort of a seminal moment where you realised that actually you were going to summit Everest 
No, the, no, there wasn't. I kind of fell into Everest. I know it's a, a, a strange thing to to say, but it was 2003, um, and I was on the back of a very successful expedition that did the uh, the first ascent of the Southwest Ridge on Annapurna Three, very high mountain in Nepal, mountain nobody's ever heard of, seven and a half thousand meters, uh, and myself and a colleague we were going through the um, mountain guides sort of training together and we were in a his Fiat Panda of all things driving up to Scotland for uh, I think our ski assessment uh, to make sure that we could actually ski this is before you even get on the training scheme and we were both living in Chamonix and it always struck me as just totally insane that we had to fly back from Chamonix to go to Scotland to take a, essentially a ski exam to yeah. prove that we could ski, and, and the the, you know, the oxymoron of this was you know it was the irony wasn't lost on us. It's like this is ridiculous. Big deep powder in Chamonix, skiing on small patches of ice in Scotland. <laughs> anyway, we were driving to Scotland, and a telephone rang, and it was a man called Simon Lowe, um, who I had worked for as a sort of leader on some of his trips lovely lovely man who took a big punt on me um a long time ago and his main leader for his Everest expedition which was leaving in about five months time had dropped out and he essentially rung me up uh, probably i don't know friday evening it was dark i remember that and it was driving rain and i answered the phone and he essentially said i need a leader for everest would you step up to the plate and lead an Everest expedition for us. Uh, and of course, I said yes. Uh, Everest had never really been on my radar. For me, it was... Why a, not? Well, uh, I thought it was on all mountaineers' radar. Well, this is an interesting one. And there's so many climbers out there that would say, yeah, don't want to go to Everest. It's a circus. It's a sideshow. It's not technical climbing. It's not hard climbing. It's still the highest mountain in the world, it's though, isn't the, it? Yeah, Exactly. Um, and every time I say this, either on TV or in interviews or in written interviews, somebody always pops up on social media and says, yeah, no, I don't want to do it. You know, I can't believe Kenton is saying this. No, he's not speaking for the masses of the climbers. However, it's Sir David Attenborough. So David, David Attenborough used to be a very keen climber. And then he had quite a big fall, by all accounts, and it scared him. And he decided that maybe he should rein in his climbing, ability, uh, his climbing uh, ambition. But he famously once said that every, and we have to take it into context, this was said in the day, that every red-blooded Englishman at some stage in their life will think or dream about climbing Everest. And I definitely believe in that. And to those naysayers, those friends and colleagues of mine, they say, no, I've got no interest in climbing Everest. If I said to them, hey, you can go to Everest for free. You can experience what it is to work alongside the Sherpas, to be on the mountain, to follow in the footsteps of, of Hillary and Tenzing, and stand on the roof of the world, um, to experience the culture and the people and the religion... I can't for a second think that any of them would say no. 
And if so they do, do you think they said, it's, it's do you think so? A, it's a money thing potentially because yeah, it is expensive it, 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 to it, it, do. It is expensive, and then maybe they feel that's cliched. That that's I, actually, I, I think that's exactly that. It's cliched, uh, and it, and it can be cliche there because it's true. No, I always no, think. No. It can it can be a busy mountain, but so is Ben Nevis, so is yeah. Mont Blanc. You know, yeah. these are honeypot mountains, and you can always avoid the crowds. Yeah. It's not hard. I mean, Ben and I were on our summit push last year, Ben Fogel. And apparently it was the busiest day that Everest has ever had in its history in terms of numbers of climbers getting to the summit. The first couple of hours, it, was, it felt that there were people around us and it was a bit stop-start. Then from the balcony, which is 8,500 metres and above, we had no issues at all. And our no summit, one else had got that high. Well, pretty much. <laughs> our summit experience, I mean, speak to Ben about it. Our summit experience was something sublimely beautiful. Mm. It didn't feel crowded. Mm. And you talk b- about this tsunami of emotion when you summit a mountain. C- can you put that into words? Can you explain that? I mean, probably not, but no, not as really. best you can for those of us who haven't we should, experienced we should, it. We should ring up Ben, because Ben's way more articulate than I am at expressing his emotion. Um, although we probably just dissolve into tears like he did on summit. In fact, we, we, we were here, so we're recording this at uh, White City House. And uh, a few months ago, we did a presentation together. Or well, Ben did a presentation. I happened to be in the audience. And he got me on stage. And um, I was a little bit naughty, actually, because somebody asked, oh, yeah, what's the view like? And Ben started to say what the view was like. And I interrupted him and said, Ben, how could you possibly know what the view was like? Because you were crying so much at the top, you can't possibly have seen the view. Um, but that's one of the reasons why we love him so much. Because uh, he does wear his emotion on his sleeve. And he's very honest. Yes, I think it's a very healthy thing. Um, yeah, and when you're on big, long expeditions, having that openness between everybody um, in any relationship, to be honest, is is extremely healthy but how how do you explain a tsunami of emotion uh, it's almost impossible and, and probably deeply personal as well so yours might differ slightly to his but if you can can you sum it up in, in words is it is it just something spiritual is it something that you just kind of can you bottle it? Can you revisit it God, when you're back home? Even if you could bottle it, oh my word, you're going to dip into that from time to yeah. time. Wow. But, do you, but can you take uh, yourself to a place when you're back in the sort of grit and grime of London and just take yourself to a place where you remember that feeling? Not really. So I've been dabbling a little bit with sort of mindfulness and I wouldn't say meditation, but mm. yeah, there's a tree that I take myself to. And I sort of sit underneath it, or sometimes I lie underneath it, and just lose myself looking at the movement of the leaves or the branches. Only, only for a few minutes. Um, and I suppose that is similar, where everything just seems to be aligned. And uh, Everest is a, is a funny one in so much that on the top of Everest, in the moment everything does seem to be aligned <laughs> and you see that and you, and you look out at the, 
Oh, I'm really sorry about this. I think about the children. I sit there and think about the children. And I, and I think about the amazing experience that's got us there. Myself and the client. And it's just something I want to share with the family. The process of the interaction with nature and the mountain and the people and what it takes to facilitate the execution of what we're trying to do. Oh, I came all emotional there. And there's, there's me it's, it's talking about Ben being all emotional. Um, and it's that connection with something which seems so unattainable when you're stood beneath it, yet it it's worked. And then there's that crash back to reality, almost like some obscene sugar crash, where I'm jolted back to why I'm there, and it's facilitating somebody else's ambition and dream. And the summit only represents a very small portion of what we're trying to do. Because generally, I've made a promise to whoever I'm with let's use Ben as the example I made a promise to Marina that I'm going to bring Ben back through the front door and this is where I need to start to really up my game because Ben has fulfilled an ambition a dream and in Ben's case a a dream since childhood and he is now emotionally fragile physically exhausted and on the way down is where the little accidents well not accidents the little effects have big big ripples and it's not the beginning of the end it's the end of the beginning and I now and the Sherpa team have to totally focus and up our game so that tsunami of emotion is very short lived it's a it's it's a tidal wave it's it's a, a bursting dam of all these feelings and and the connection back home with the children and and you can almost taste what it's like walking through the back do- uh, back door at home again and you can you can see it you can visualize it yet it's so it needs to be so far away so that my focus is now a hundred percent on on the client on the team to get back down because the promise is not to get to the top the promise is to get back through the front door not just for the client but for the Sherpa team and of course myself so so the emotion on the top is this melange of yeah we've done it you know I've I've you know I've fulfilled part of the ambition puzzle is nearly complete but the next part is the most far-reaching dangerous part of of the whole journey and it's not until we step through the front door that the last piece of the puzzle is put into place um and, and all the time you're battling that inner that inner turmoil with the children and I I talk about this a lot about high level decision making it can't be affected by third third party influences so you can't let what Saffron is doing at school or what Willoughby is doing running around the garden 
come into their inner psyche it's that being able to switch off again and that's so so difficult so difficult I mean it's affected me here today in this beautiful surroundings that we're in in London no, it's dissolving the tears. Just thinking about what it's like on the on the top, because the view. Uh, imagine the best. You know, imagine whatever it is for for, the, for you, the listener, looking at the amazing piece of art, or looking out across, you know, the most amazing sunset. You know, on the, the western tip of Portugal, or you're sat there with your loved one with a glass of red wine. You know, whatever that moment is that that transcends you to somewhere else that sat on top and you're there looking around and you are so connected in a heightened state with everything around you it's like everything is in technicolor now 8d or whatever they're filming these days i mean it's beyond that it's like i don't know like 64D these days. I mean, it's you know, it's K, uh, 64K, right? It's it's incredible. The clarity. You are so close to space. Well, you see, but you know, you're there. And the skies are deep blue, and you can look down on mountains, and you can reach. Yeah, you feel like you can reach them, touch them, and they don't look real because they look so small. It's all caster sugar just dappled over them. It's incredible. And you're sat there taking this all in, knowing at the same time you're fulfilling people's dreams. It's, God, it's amazing. It's, oh, outrageous. I'm, I'm, de- I'm deeply moved. And as you say, we're sitting in yeah, murky old West yeah. London. <laughs> Yeah, how, how long do you stay on the summit for before you start the descent? Um, I, well, I famously said that you get to the top, it's like touch and go because you want to get back down again. You know, and it's all about getting back down. However, with Ben, we were up there like an hour. It, you know, he had to say thanks to so many people and film so much. And you know, he does it so well. I mean, I, I had about four people to thank, and I think I thanked like two. Um, and ben, 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 ben just, I mean, even in that hypoxic state and that emotional state, he'd be, because we, we were there with a the cameraman as well, Mark Fisher, lovely, lovely man. He's like, okay, sorry, Mark, just, just one more, just one more. And Mark, oh, come on, come on. He's like, it's incredible. He's such a professional. How does he do that? I, I was going to say, imagine coming halfway back down and going, ah, shit, just one, one, one more well, link well, I had to go the, and do. Well, well that's <laughs> what I did. I mean, I, I got some great sponsors and, you know, I, I can't thank them enough for support all the years. And we were up there this year and I'd sacrificed my oxygen for Ben because it's blown up. So I was hypoxic. And I literally had, I think, three sponsors to say thank you to. <laughs> and uh, I managed one. It's like, what was that? You can say it now. About? Say it now. Take this opportunity. Oh, well, I mean, at the time, yeah, we had Mont Blanc. Oh, so last year we had the, um, the guys at Alliance, Mont Blanc, uh, Land Rover being a long-term sponsor. And I know it's commercial and commercialism doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with climbing and things like that. But without this long-term support of a number of brands out there, what I do... It wouldn't have been possible. They're great. I mean, I was going to ask you that. What, what do you say to those who, who criticise monetising a mountain? You know, because obviously you have to charge quite a lot of money to take people up and down. And what do you say to them? And, and is there a justification for making a living from something that isn't yours? 
Yeah, it, 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 it's a tricky one. Um, the diehards don't like it. Um, and I understand their point of view to, to, to a certain extent. Yeah, I came from being, like, inverted commas, an amateur climber. I sort of made it sort of a little bit commercial by seeking sponsorship when I was at the top of my game. And then I became a commercial mountain guide. Uh, and there's, there's lots of mountains out there which are commercial. Mont Blanc, um, Matterhorn, Everest. These are commercial mountains. You don't have to hire a guide to go to these mountains. And a lot of the criticism is that we attempt to lower the mountain to the ability of the climber. And in a lot of cases, that is, that is, the, the, that is true. What I try to do on Everest, I was chatting to a potential client this morning, um, saying you know, the way that I work is 18 months, two years, normally at a minimum to build the client up to a point where I believe he or she has a legitimate um, not reason to be there because the reason is their personal thing but they, they can be at base camp and hold their head up high knowing that they're not a fraudulent individual to be there they have the experience to be on that mountain yes they, they, they need me and the Sherpa team to help facilitate it but it's not a case that they've never worn crampons not a case that they've never climbed another mountain um, but that does happen on Everest but then it happens on Mont Blanc it happens on Ben Nevis why because they're technically not as difficult as some others I mean K2 for example is not much of a height difference K2's obviously but very difficult 200 meters lower down uh, climbers would say that K2 is beginning to become a little bit like Everest, oh, really? i.e. commercial teams are going there wow. with heavy Sherpa support and fixing a line from essentially the bottom to the top. That's what we do on Everest. Right. We fix a line from bottom to top. So you put a, a clamp on the line called a Juma and you push that clamp up and you essentially climb a rope. you still got to put one foot in front of another. Mm. Now, and if climbers don't like that idea of facilitating others to enjoy the mountains mm. so be it there's so many other mountains or you can go to Everest out of season mm. um, and, and is the criticism because it's damaging the mountain in some way to have that that amount of traffic going up and down it yeah I mean you, you could argue that Everest certain points of an Everest you know they are quite trashy uh, camp 2 and camp 4 I mean base camp is so t- so clean and Ben talks about this a lot mm. he had a piece in the Telegraph the Guardian last year saying how clean the mountain was he was expecting a rubbish dip it's not you know, the, the thing that I would I would argue same with the Matterhorn same with Mont Blanc um, these mountains have brought prosperity to the local area and the Kumbu region the valley that leads up to Everest where a lot of the Sherpas come from that's arguably the most affluent area in the whole of Nepal. Nepal is the poorest nation in Southeast Asia. It has obscene poverty levels. The average salary is about 400 bucks a year. There's childhood malnutrition. There's you know, disease. There's high-level corruption. Yet this, this icon, this beacon of hope that they call Sagamatha, Mother Goddess of the Earth, it has brought prosperity to the Sherpa people. Um, to, to the case that you know, to the point that the Sherpas are beginning to rise through the caste system because of the prosperity how can that be a bad thing you see it in Switzerland now Zermatt wasn't that long ago that Zermatt was a bunch of essentially hill farmers who owned the land 
Then along comes skiing, along comes climbing, mountaineering, and all of a sudden Zermatt becomes uh, monetized, it becomes very prosperous, and look where it is now. That's essentially built on the Matterhorn. Not that many people have criticised the Matterhorn and what happens on the Matterhorn. There might be 300 guided ascents a day on the Matterhorn, all season. And is there a sense of sort of elitism and snobbery amongst climbers that others aren't in some way worthy? Yeah, of, of course doing there it? is. Yeah, yeah, there is. Uh, there's a lot of naysayers out there, but it keeps coming back to you know what are we in this for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in it to go out to the outdoors and enjoy ourselves, have fun. Why shouldn't that be facilitated to everybody? And I do understand people's criticisms whereby they say, why don't you leave Everest unfixed, i.e. don't put that rope in it, uh, and let people go to other points of the Himalayas or to other mountains and get their experiences from there. And that would be a valid point. Um, Say the the man or the woman who doesn't have the experience, who thinks they can pay 50, 60, 70, 100,000 dollars and get their hand held to the top of Everest. Why don't they go to another mountain um, and learn their trade, learn their craft, gain the experience? I'm all over that. I know that is the way you should do it. But there is an industry around these mountains and there is always going to be somebody who's going to take your money, unfortunately, and try to facilitate the ascent. And if those hardcore you know, climbers who have such a, a passionate negativity against others going into the into the mountains well you know hey chief don't go there They'll go somewhere else you have the experience to go to other some other far-flung place in the alps or in scotland or in the himalayas and get your kicks in exactly the same way that others get their kicks now we shouldn't label it okay everest is commercial but you don't have to join a commercial team um Mont Blanc is commercial, but you don't need to hire a guide. Matterhorn is commercial. Again, you don't need to hire a guide. They just go out there and do what's right for you as an individual. Be responsible for your actions um, and just enjoy it. Now, I'm going to tell you about my niece, Evie, who was nine. And, uh, look, might be slightly biased, but she has this uncanny ability to climb. She will go... I'll show you videos of her later. And, and anyone listening, I will put some clips up on Instagram. She's a joke. She's like this little monkey. She can walk on her hands all day long, but she'll just scale walls. She scares the crap out of me because she will literally come to our house and I'll find her just shimming her way up the, you know, the guttering or something. I mean, like, she is mad. She's got this ambition to be, break the record for being the youngest kid to climb Everest. <laughs> she's, she's gone into school and said this is what she's going to do with Uncle Wiggy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so this is the idea. He's proud of her like a daughter. Yeah. Uh, this is my husband I'm talking about. <clears throat> now my husband, I, I'm digressing slightly here, but he said that he wants to do any 8,000 metre. Yeah. It doesn't have to be Everest, but she's adamant that it is going to be Everest. Am I right in thinking the record is currently 12? And I think it's a Sherpa kid, isn't it? It's a, it's a local kid. Ooh. I thought it was was Jordan Romanus, who was 13 and an American climber. Um, So so, I'm asking, is it possible possible for a kid to do it? Okay, so currently, uh, after Romanus did it, um, there are age limits put in place. I think it's 18 on both sides. Um, But, yeah, certainly a friend of mine, um, Pemba Dorji, 
uh, he, he wanted his son, who was about 11 or 12, to climb, to, to, to break the record and to have the youngest, be, to be a Sherpa. Uh, I would encourage Evie 100% in everything that she wants to do. Ambition, I believe, is a great, great thing, being bold. The only thing I would perhaps temper is um, records get broken, yeah. uh, especially youngest and oldest, and it's not always healthy sometimes to, to, to be the youngest. You know, our bodies are still physiologically changing mm. when we're that age and to expose ourselves to extreme altitude mm. and doctors don't really know what our bodies do they subtly change when we're up there but you know i i would say hey you know if you have that passion evie run with it it doesn't have to be everest if that's your goal yeah hey brilliant I mean, honest, i'm all over it mountain, but but but, but yeah. find an everest this is yeah. for anybody out there you know use everest as a metaphor it yeah. could be to run a yeah. 10k it could be to run a 1k it could be to get in a rower to get outside i mean the key thing is to you know to to, to have that passion that gets you out of bed mm. so that, that you sit on the end of the bed as you pull your socks on at the start of the day and you just think christ i'm going to own today that today I'm going to crush. It's going to be my day, and 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 to lead that into your life. And you know, if climbing's what fires Evie up, I mean, God, do it. You no, know, really you know, get get on the case of NICAS, which is the National Indoor Climbing Scheme. I happen to be an ambassador for for them. You know, they nurture children through climbing, so they get the necessary skills to be able to take that outdoors. You know, rock climbing is such a great participation sport for young people and it's not expensive there are walls popping up all over the place and then if you do transcend that into walk, you know up snowdon or mont blanc or you know god forbid even everest ah oh, i mean hey tell her to just drop me a line I'd, I'd i'd like to meet evie and just high five and say yeah hey go girl just, just, just it's amazing. It we don't really sure where she's got it from because her, her mum and dad aren't like this. But she's matter. just crazy I mean, but, but about my, it. My mum and dad didn't climb. Yeah. Now I grew up. Yeah, just photographer outside. and a florist, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. I, I grew up just outside Slough. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's no mountains in Slough. It's just a shame that there's people out there that just don't get. They just don't get it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of. They're really good friends of mine who are like, God, you know, why do you keep going back to Everest? Mm-hmm. Now, why do you facilitate? those who should be on other mountains getting up there and I just think it's a I just think it's a little bit selfish and short-sighted well why shouldn't somebody else get as much joy uh, and fun from the mountains as anybody else the, the, the only slight crushing thing is that you've got to pay a peak permit to be on Everest but then it's a so way what's that? it's 11,000 US just to be allowed to climb it so but then you feel it's the reserve of the, of the yeah, wealthy, and then that bit. does yeah. feel which, which wrong. Which is, yeah, yeah. So, so, so mountaineering generally... Evie better get saving. <laughs> yeah. I mean, mountaineering generally is a bit of an anarchistic sport, which is open to everybody. You know, I said there's no rules or regulations, and there's no dress code. But by putting the peak fee on, especially one that much, yeah. it does limit it a little bit. And I think that's where some of the resentment comes from. Right. But then the theory... That goes into Nepal. It goes into the you know, the wallets of of of, of, um, you know, of the country. So that's unfortunate. Nepal is very corrupt. So quite where that money goes. That is a real shame. Yeah, and we, 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 we and we saw that after the um, 
after the earthquake, the terrible earthquake of, of 2015, where there was so much aid went across to there and it was sat on the tarmac while people were waiting for backhanders and to, to like get stuff through customs and to and to get aid to the people that really needed it. Um, there was something like 8,000 deaths, wasn't there? Isn't that oh, it's, it's more than that. It's something like over 10,000 deaths. 600 schools were, were destroyed. One, one of the big things was you know, the legacy of that earthquake, uh, if there is such a thing, was there was concern that an entire generation could potentially go without an education because over 600 schools were totally destroyed. And this is in a country which, at very best, has a fragile education, fragile medical um, sort of systems. Um, but the Nepalese are resilient people, and they get kicked down time and time again, and somehow they get back on their two feet with a smile and keep progressing. And you know, honestly, the listeners out there, book yourself, you know, go trek to it. Everest Base Camp, go trek to Annapurna or go, go on a safari in Chitwan National Park. You know, the rafting is world class. Go visit this country because all of a sudden you come back with a very different view about community and people and culture to the extent that when I land back at Heathrow, I get embarrassed by what we have in this country. We are the developed nation. We are the developed society compared with the developing society and developing nation. But Christ, have we lost our way somewhere. Yeah, you can go and knock on any door, anybody's door in Nepal, and you'll be welcome with... If you need help, if you want advice, if you want a roof for the night or need to be fed, they welcome you in. You do that anywhere around here. I mean, God, we're, we're, we're in, what, central London or west London. And, uh, we could go downstairs. We, we could try it out. We could go downstairs right now. We're going to go knock on someone's door and say, listen, I'm hungry and you know, I'm lost. Do, do, can, I, can, I, can I sit in your living room for, for a bit and try and get my bearings and uh, you know, any chance of a cup of tea? Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's the norm over there. Yeah. There's so much more focus on community. Yeah. And, and on a personal level, you lost friends in that earthquake. Didn't you, Sherpa friends? Yeah, we did, unfortunately. Uh, um, uh, you know, the, the man that we used to use, uh, Pasang Temba, we used to, he used to be our camp two cook. He was deaf. Um, he was deaf. He was this weird-looking dude. He had these buck teeth and these like, really weird ears. Looks like he played front row somewhere. He's got these like, cauliflower ears. And, you know, Pasang Temba. He couldn't, like, he couldn't hear you two most beautiful daughters and you look at him and you look at the daughters and go how did that happen um, but no we lost him and the cook boy and what happened because a lot of people died about 18 people died on Everest that year because of the earthquake and it wasn't being buried it was the air blast so what happened I, I took this, I'm so lucky I wasn't there um, I took a year off but the crew were still working and in the uh, yeah, the earthquake made this big avalanche, a Sirac fell off from a neighbouring mountain called Pomoy, and it came down the mountainside, and the air blast from that ice collapse devastated base camp. And Pasantemba and uh, Kumar, the cook boy, apparently ran into the cook tent, and the blast literally lifted the cook tent 
off the floor, 200 feet, and has smashed him back into the into the ground. And yeah, that was that was that. And am I right in thinking that the earthquake made Everest a dangerous place afterwards as well? Yeah, I mean, for, I mean, for how long? Um, well, nobody, nobody summited that year. Both north, thank you. Uh, both, both north and south side, all the teams decided that's it. We're going to go home. Um, on the south side, you have to go through the Kumbu Icefall, which is this colossal glacier river of ice with hanging ice cliffs. It's like this Lord Ring-esque world that you're in. It's so beautiful. You know, it's this green and blue ice. It's, just like, it's like being a boy, you know, a little boy again. You find your way through this maze, and it's full of mischief and intrigue. It's beautiful, but it is insanely dangerous with big crevasses going to the depths of Mordor underneath you and you've got these hanging ice cliffs and nobody knew how safe or otherwise they were and the ice all got cut off for a couple of days with teams higher on the mountain I mean I wasn't there so this is just what I hear from friends and colleagues and it's a case of yeah, Everest is dangerous enough as it is yeah, we don't yeah, need yeah. to add you know, and base camp got completely destroyed it was raised to the ground. It was, apparently it was like a disaster zone. People were coming down, tents were like just gone. And people were picking up a sock here, a climbing helmet there. It sounded. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Like an apocalyptic nightmare. Um... Yeah, and and so, for those so who so don't much. know, including me, how dangerous can altitude sickness be? Because I remember Ben Fogel telling me about Victoria Pendleton. Oh, and God, that biscuit's just... insanely beautiful. <laughs> you know, like, I just, I just <laughs> been handed like a ginger biscuit. And um, I'm currently on this, I, I fast for about 16 hours a day. So I, I had lunch a couple of hours ago, which was a light lunch. And that, that biscuit is the first thing I... Right. He's, enjoying, he's enjoying a biscuit. Wow. There's an appreciation there that's gone another level. Um, but, but how bad can altitude sickness be? I gather that Victoria really struggled with it. Mm. Like, it, it, it can lead to death, can't it? Mm, very much so. So, you know, we, we spoke earlier about the death zone and little Willoughby's saying about the death yeah. zone. You don't have to be at 8,000 metres to experience altitude sickness. If listeners have been out there on Kilimanjaro, Kilimanjaro is 5,800 metres. It has about a 60% success rate. And the other people that don't climb it normally succumb to altitude because they don't let their body adapt to the altitude. Altitude is a leveller. You can be James Cracknell, you can be Victoria Pendleton, who we were climbing with this year. You can be a world-class athlete. Altitude doesn't care who you are. It will level you. 
Um, and VP Victoria, we knew through testing in London that she acclimatized more slowly. Most people will acclimatize, just the length of time it would take. But we knew that VP had this uh, slight issue with acclimatization. Yet the amazing thing about her is even with outrageously low blood saturation levels, i.e. the amount of oxygen in her blood, she was able to perform. I mean, we saw stats in her in the 40s. Now, I'd never seen a stat that low until we went to Bolivia. Yet she could get up and climb mountains. It was, Explain what that means. Okay, so, so sat here right now, uh, you and I, Pinks, I mean, we put a little uh, machine on our finger. It measures the amount of oxygen we have flowing yeah. around in our blood, blood saturation. And we would probably be about 98.5, 99% out of 100. If it drops to low 90s, you would normally be in A&E. If it dropped in the 80s, you'd probably be in intensive care if you were in London. Um, on Everest, because we've gone to higher elevation, even at base camp, um, once we were acclimatized, we would pro- probably be low 90s. As we go up and down the mountain, getting acclimatized, we would, might see it drop into the 70s, maybe even into the high 60s. Much lower than that, alarm bells start to ring. We were in Bolivia with Ben and Victoria, and we saw a stat in Victoria of 48. And I was like, oh my God, this is like, uh, alarm bells ringing. And she was saying, I've got a bit of a headache, but I feel a bit nauseous, but I'm okay. okay." And the next day, we climbed a 6,000-meter peak. I was carefully monitoring her. My my role as a mountain guide is to keep people safe. And this, this is in the red. This is like alarm bells, da, da, da. We, you know... We, we underwent some testing in London with a very good friend of mine, um, uh, Dr. Sundip Dillon, beautiful man, um, who's got a uh, sort of clinic looking at high altitude, the effects of low pressure, high altitude on the body. And uh, we knew that VP had some issues acclimatizing. Fast forward to Everest, and it wasn't just altitude. I mean, you've seen in the press recently with her. Um, I'm so fond of VP. And she would be the first to say you know, she, she has addressed a number of issues in her life yeah. uh, of late. And Everest, unfortunately, was perhaps you know, right place, wrong time, mm-hmm. where she was in her life. Added to that the health issues of not acclimatizing. We were at Camp 2, and she essentially staggered into the mess tent we got at Camp 2 and collapsed, or all but collapsed, with a stat of 28 if she was in London with a stat of 28, she'd be dead. Yeah, similar to that, she'd so, be dead. So why wasn't she? Because her body's adapting. You know, our bodies, uh, uh, the ability of our body to survive in low oxygen. You know, we undergo these subtle physiological changes. Exactly what it is, nobody is entirely sure. But I think it just shows her resilience as a person, as an athlete. You know, even with a stat in the 40s, she climbed up to 7,000 metres. And I was just there thinking, how is she doing this? And then you just think, well, it's Victoria. Two-time Olympic champion, nine-time world champion. She's got this inner strength of simply not... She's hard as nails. I find that fascinating that someone clearly with this steely determination and inner strength as you say can also have real frailties and she's talked openly about depression and mental health issues but this this girl is 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 made of pretty tough stuff isn't she of course she's made of tough stuff but we all have 
our Achilles heel. Yeah. We all have cupboard, well, perhaps Ben doesn't, I don't know, no, our, our cupboard of skeletons, mm-hmm. you know, our kryptonite out there, which will level us. Um, you know, and it's, you know, it's been in the press a lot recently, the whole mental health thing, and you know, are any of us normal? No, of course we're not. That's what makes us so special as individuals. And we've all got our own baggage. We've all got our own problems and issues that we're trying to work through, our anxieties. And when you've been as focused as VP has, when you've been the very top of your game, um, you know, adjusting to everyday life, and it's no secret now, she was going through a divorce, which was you know, a little bit ugly. She's driven. You know, she sees things in her eyes which are a failure which in perhaps my eyes I see a success and yeah I, I'm so fond of VP and I think she's been so brave it's been difficult times it's been difficult times for her and unfortunately I don't think Everest together with Ben and myself and Mark the cameraman and our beautiful Sherpa crew was quite what she needed at that at that time and it's, it's really good to see her that she's bounced back from it yeah, yeah, uh, since then um, a couple more quick questions to you. Um, oxygen when climbing, because I know that that's something that you advocate. Um, there's others who who don't. Um, yeah. Can you get your head around the madness of climbing without oxygen? Um, yeah, so... Uh, o- o- oxygen, so sorry, I'm just... Uh, really you're trying, you're trying to multitask, aren't yeah, you? Trying, He's trying to message uh, the, dog the, dog, the dog sitter and answer questions uh, about acclimatisation oxygen no because yeah, my, hus- my husband was telling me about um, renal messenger who yeah, okay, famously yeah. <laughs> Reinhold messenger <laughs> Reinhold, Mes- uh, Reinhold messenger so Everest was first climbed without oxygen uh, in May 1978 by Reinhold Messner the Italian Reinhold Messner and the Austrian um, Peter Harbler Peter Harbler is such a lovely man oh uh, I mean, I, I, I want to meet all these people now. Harbour must be late sixties, maybe even early. Maybe 70s. I can go and find him for this podcast. Oh, I do okay. it. Really? No, do it because really? honestly, if he walked in now, yeah. people would stop talking, turn around, and look at him. He looks like a film star. Yeah. He holds himself with such elegance, such charisma. Yet he is so understated. Mm. And the partnership between Messner and Harbler in the 60s into the 70s was second to none. Mm. Honestly, they, those guys are incredible. And he's so humble. Harbler is the most humble man on the planet. Now you could argue mm. that using supplementary oxygen is a bit like using drugs in sport in so much they aid your recovery it aids your um, performance on the mountain 8,850 metres above sea level that's how high Everest is it's the experts the scientists say if it was a 200 metres higher even with that supplementary oxygen it would be unclimbable so it's right on the cusp of what you can do as a human being what Messner and Harbler did they rewrote the book nobody thought it could be done they didn't know it could be done and Messner has this lovely quote that goes something along the lines of oh well this is when actually this was in 1980 when he went back to the mountain and did a new route solo with nobody else without oxygen and he said that when he was on the summit he found himself looking down upon himself from above and he felt like he was a lung floating in the atmosphere 
or something like that. It, it, was, it was a beautiful sentiment for what is a diabolically horrible thing, i.e. not having oxygen when you really need it. Is it how high do you need to be to be effectively dying because you're, you're not getting from, enough from oxygen? about six and a half six, six and a half seven thousand meters right. uh, much above that it is the death zone there's a reason why as a species we don't live above five thousand meters yeah. um, vegetation doesn't grow there animals don't live there human beings don't live there so we're not adapted to living at super high altitude most people use oxygen because they just wouldn't be able to do it without yeah wouldn't be able to, but a very few number of people have climbed it without I don't know it's probably less than 1% 0.1% something like that oxygen keeps your your digits warm your fingers your toes and it keeps your rational thought processes intact you, you, you are literally starving your brain of oxygen by going to Everest and as my job as a mountain guide I'm looking after you I need my decision-making ability to be as tip-top as I can make it. And for me, it's a no-brainer. I have to use oxygen. Mm. As a duty of care to mm. my clients, mm. to you, I have to use oxygen. Mm. I'd love to go there without and try. All my colleagues say, why bother? We all know you can do it. But until you actually try, mm. you never know. Mm. Um, and hardly a day goes by without me thinking, could I? Really? Yeah. Long-term effects on, on the body, nobody really knows. You know, it's probably going to damage your brain. Yeah. You're starving your brain of oxygen. My short-term memory has already been affected by, I think, the amount of time I spend at altitude. Really? Well, that's my excuse to my wife. <laughs> uh, perhaps you could call it old age or a misspent youth, I don't know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you're, you're dabbling with what's on the very parameters of what we can achieve as human beings. Um, and... Yeah, all my clients use oxygen. I heavily advise them to use oxygen. And does it detract from the performance of climbing Everest? The sense of achievement. The sense of achievement, that's a better word. No, I don't think it does. It's down to the individual. What matters to you? Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter what other people think. Did you enjoy yourself? Did you push yourself beyond what you thought you were capable of? Mm. Have you achieved something which you believe is great for you? Screw the naysayers. Mm. Screw what other people think. It doesn't matter. It's what you think about what you've done. Mm. You run a 10K in two hours, but you think you've done a great job. You gave it 100%. Mm. That's bloody marvellous. Mm. Who's anybody else to say, yeah, two hours is crap time? I don't care. What's, what's it to do with me do you feel good about it yeah great did you climb with oxygen yeah I did did it feel good being on top ah oh, Kenton it was the best thing ever job done so so, really what I'm kind of gathering from this is that yes it can be bloody dangerous I mean have there been times when you felt genuinely life at threat like vulnerable that you... uh, on Everest yeah. no not really, really? Uh, it's or anywhere anywhere oh, anywhere yeah loads Many of times, times. Yeah. yeah loads of times I mean Annapurna 3 we pushed the boundaries of what I could do mentally and physically destroyed my relationship with one of the climbers on that trip there's only three of us on that trip uh, I've, I've hardly spoken to John um, John since um, I mean I have we were in con- contact a little while ago but we, for years we didn't speak it just took the relationship I thought he was going to die one night uh, it, it, he yeah he was yeah. I never thought you were going to die though yeah a number of times really yeah um, and I, I think it's really important as individuals to really push ourselves because mm. it's only when 
So it's only when we're on the very brink, when we really look down into the darkness, and we risk, you know, we risk the loss, the loss of everything which is important and close to us. When you do that, when you stare into the abyss, that's when you truly realise and start to appreciate what we actually have. And it's almost impossible to appreciate what we have in this society, in this day and age, without pushing ourselves beyond. And climbing has given me that. Climbing has allowed me to virtually look at the Grim Reaper and walk away. Maybe he thought it was the wrong time. Maybe it wasn't the time for him to tap me on the shoulder and say, you know, come with me. Um, And when you come back from those experiences, I think all of a sudden, normality, if that's what we want to call it, back home, becomes almost as heightened and as clear as the feeling that we have when we're on expedition. Because I grapple with it daily. Now, what is normal life? Is it here, Mm. at home with the family in London, in the Cotswolds? No, I don't think so. This is some make-believe bubble that we're in, this cotton wool environment that we have. Strip that away, that should be normality. That should be our reality. That should be our baseline that we rate everything else against. Um, but I do think that going to that deeply dark place that's when we appreciate what true living is well Kenton that feels like perfect moment to finish on do you know what thank you so much for your time I've, I've loved listening to you and I know that everyone listening to this will have enjoyed it as much as I did on a personal level I want to thank you as well because uh, my husband has always said from the day I met him that this is a lifelong ambition whether it's ever it's just 8,000 metres he wants uh-huh. to climb above it and I know in my heart now having spoken to you that I've got to let him do it you're going to make me cry now oh, thank you that again. <laughs> no, it, it, I mean it's, it's, it's just interesting it's just interesting because I know that I wouldn't be a decent wife to him if I didn't let him go well that, that, that's a it's a really nice thing to hear, um, but it, it needs to be a... I say this to all my clients. What, what's really important is that the family and close friends are all on board because whatever it is you're doing, whether it's Everest or K2 or one of the other 8,000-meter peaks, they are dangerous places to be. And it's really important that before stepping into that arena, everybody knows what the consequences are. Mm. And you know, the, obviously the consequences in this instance potentially is daddy, husband, friend not coming home. And only when we're aware of what the consequences are and we have a willingness to accept that are we in a position to accept the risk. So, yeah, people need to be on board on that. Having said that, I love it. I love it. I know if you're talking about death, but you know, those times when we're up high, and we, we talked about it earlier, the clarity, and he... he he will come back with a invigorated lust for life and for everything else and it's not it's not for everybody but yeah I mean Wiggy's a lovely man I mean I I, uh, I look back on our time together with 
fond, fond memories. His lust for life is already at like sort of 15 out of 10. I mean, I, I've never really known anybody like him. And you are such a beautiful family unit. Um, you know, I'd, I'd love to have a trip away with him, you know, a proper trip away at the same time. You know, I, I don't want to rip him away from family because that is... It all goes hand in hand. Um, but... Um, but no, hey, listen, I want to say thank you for inviting me on your, your, your lovely podcast.